0: It's lovely to have you here. Um, We are starting a new series on the Minor Prophets, and um, I get the opportunity to kind of give you guys a bit of an intro into the Minor Prophets. Um, So today we're going to have a little look, and I'm going to try and be really quick, but there's a bit to it. So we're going to look at the Minor Prophets in general, kind of how they're structured, and then we're going to take a look at Amos. And it's only a coincidence that my husband's name is Amos. It was just the one I felt drawn to. Who knows why? (laughs) So um, as we start, and I would also encourage you to um, have a read through. This is what I did. Have a read through the 12 minor prophets from start to finish, starting in Hosea, going through to Malachi. And the reason I'd encourage you to do that is, and we're going to look at this in a minute, they're actually uh, edited together to be read that way. But also I think what you're going to find is, possibly like I did, you're probably going to actually come away with a lot of questions and sitting in a lot of tension of maybe being really uncomfortable about the things that come up and that's okay. So I want to say that up front, that if you decide you're going to sit and you're going to read through the prophets, which I encourage you to do, there are going to be things that come up that you just go, Ooh, I don't, I don't like that depiction of who God is maybe or I don't I'm struggling with that that's okay and we want this to be a space where you can have those questions and you can sit with those things and you can bring those questions and we're going to try and journey through those things because that's that is what these books were designed to do and they, the people of Israel they sat with these same questions and wrestled with these same things so don't be put off if you read them and you're like oh this is heavy because I did I was in a bad space I think after reading some of those I was like my goodness but There is hope and there are good things um, through these prophets. So I think what we have to understand is the prophets, they are part of telling the history of Israel and it's Israel's lens of seeing God and who God is and how he works within um, their history, within their story. And so we have to always be reminded that when we read these things... It's their testimony filtered through their lens, of Israel's lens, of what God was doing with them, and when he was for them, and all of those those elements together. So, we have these books called The Minor Prophets, and um, you're going to see this diagram that kind of gives us an indication of, it's called the broken tuning fork, um, and it gives kind of like this good visual depiction of the history of Israel and Judah, and where our prophetic books sit within that timeline. Um, And they're actually called the Minor Prophets. You might know them as the Minor Prophets, but a really interesting thing that I found out is that we call them the Minor Prophets because St. Augustine decided they were gonna be called the Minor Prophets. Um, And he said, oh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, they're really long, so we'll call them the major ones. And these guys are pretty short, so I'm gonna call them the minor ones. Before then, though, and we've got records of around from 200 BCE, they were called the Book of the Twelve. And they were called this because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel were so long that they, when they were scribed, they were on one big scroll, so they'd fill one big book. But the Twelve, because they were smaller, they were all compiled onto one scroll and they were edited together so that they could be read as a depiction of Israel's history from about 8th century BCE through to the 5th. So there's actually a real purpose to why they're put in the order that they're put and what story they are trying to tell. And you can see there um, our different prophets and where they sit. And we're hearing the story of the people of God throughout these different prophets. And so you've got prophets like Hosea... Amos and Jonah and they're all for the northern kingdom they're depicting what's happening within the northern kingdom Hosea and Amos are about Assyria coming in Joel Obadiah Micah prophet or prophetic words for the southern kingdom for Judah but before the exile of the northern kingdoms and they're really dealing as well with the Assyrian dominance and the really interesting thing about Jonah and I don't know whether we're going to talk about Jonah I think Mike's pretty keen but I'm going to cut in here and say Jonah deals with the Assyrians but what happens with the people the Assyrian people they're the ones that come to God so in amongst all of this depiction of like Assyria coming and they're going to dominate we have Jonah where it's like oh, yeah, but they're the ones that actually turn to God and they're the ones who are seen as following God and not Jonah. And I find that fascinating because what the editors of the Old Testament, particularly with the 12 minor prophets in this book of the the prophets, it was their way of kind of having a dig at what was happening post-exile where there was a lot of, they wanted to, a lot of the Israelites or the Jews wanted to have a bit of an ethnic cleansing and only have Jewish people back in Jerusalem. And scholars often say that this book, Jonah, is used as a way of kind of hitting back at that movement to say, hey, remember that even God was with the Assyrians, with those from Nineveh. And so I find that really fascinating that even within our Old Testament, there are different scribes and writers who are going, who are challenging each other on some of the ideas that they have about God. And I find that fascinating. So then we have the story of Micah, where the Assyrians head south. They go back and attack Judah. And then in Nahum, the Assyrians are destroyed by the Babylonians. And so what we trace is this fall of, we have this dominant power of Assyria and then their fall. And then we have that same power coming, Babylonians coming into the southern kingdom, destroying Jerusalem. And we read about that in Habakkuk and Zephaniah too. And we skip right over the exile. We don't actually have any of these minor prophets in exile. And then we have the return back to the southern kingdom in Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. So all of these prophets, this book of the twelve, it traces Israel's history. And so when you read them, you can actually get a sense of, okay, so these ones are about the northern kingdom, then we're going to the southern, and then we're, it's, it's post-exile. And it helps us to give a little bit of context to what's happening there. So the nature of this literature is different to what we probably expect when we even hear the word prophetic. Because what we have in these books is these books have been edited and written down and reinterpreted over hundreds of years within Israel's history. So we have the core prophets, let's say Amos, the core prophet Amos, and what word he had. But then we actually have over the years, and we can see it in the different editions of the scribes, different words of hope and restoration. They're added to and reinterpreted to. Um, So though we might have things that are predicted years in advance, we also have the writers who are standing way back on this side of history, looking back and writing words of hope within the prophetic books to say, hey, all of that terrible stuff really did happen but we're now over here after it and we can look back and see there was hope and God has remained faithful. And so a lot of the hope and restoration words that are in our prophetic books are also coming After the exile and writers saying, hey, God was actually with us still and he was faithful, even though at that time everything went bad. And so these types of things, and that might be different to what you may have understood before about how those books are compiled... And though for some people I I can understand, you might go, but I just thought it was all like someone just like sat down and totally prophesied hundreds of years in advance. There are some of those things, but actually the better thing and the, the better news is that these were continually lived out and wrestled with and reinterpreted and added to to show God continually working in the people. And we see that then still happen in the New Testament because Jesus takes Scripture and he reinterprets it again. Paul takes Scripture and prophetic word and he reinterprets again for his people. And so we do the same now. We take the Scripture and we go, okay, so how is God using this now for us? And it's that continual living word of God at work, which I just think is so cool. So... That brings us to the book of Amos. Amos was around an 8th century prophet. So we're going all the way back before any of the exiles, before any of the destruction of Israel. We don't know much about him except that he was probably wealthy. Um, and he wasn't like a court prophet. So in those days, the kings would have their own Prophets within their court that they would call on to, you know, give some good news or try and back them up. And we can see that in Kings. We have some of those prophets who were not great um, and going against what God said. Amos isn't one of those guys. He just gets called from a town. He's from Judah, he's from the other kingdom. And he just goes and he goes to Bethel, which was the place of worship for the northern kingdom. And he really has a go at the Northern Kingdom. And there were some times when I... If you read through Amos, please do. There are some brilliant burns. Oh, man. Like, like proper, like calling people cows. and Like just lots of things where you're like, yeah, he really didn't waste time. He just... He went for the jugular a little bit. <laughs> so that's Amos. And it's nothing like my husband, by the way. I know my parents, my in-laws are here today. And... Um, he's nothing like that. He's the opposite. He's the kindest, sweetest person ever. So named after a great prophet, but not after his character, I don't think. (laughs) Um, So um, Amos's place within our Book of the Twelve is intentional by the editors because he comes after Hosea. And whilst Hosea kind of oscillates between Lots of judgment, but then lots of promise of hope, lots of judgment, hope, judgment, hope, you're back and forth all the time. Amos comes in and he's like, yeah, you didn't, you didn't heed that warning, so I'm coming in with just the judgment. And we have the same pattern with Micah and, and with Zephaniah, I think it is. Micah's hope, judgment, hope, judgment. And then the, the people of the southern kingdom don't listen and so then we have another prophet who's like, Well, here we go. So, again, the intentionality behind the editors to compile these together, it's brilliant. So Amos comes in and the Northern Kingdom are really prospering. Things are going really well for them. But Amos is all about justice and righteousness. Because what was happening in the Northern Kingdom, it was prospering. But it was prospering because they were oppressing their own people things were really bad for their own people. And these words, justice and righteousness, there are a lot of different meanings for each one of those words on their own. When they're put together in the way they're put together in Amos, they mean social justice. Amos was all about the social justice or the lack thereof that was occurring within Israel. And interestingly, if you read through it, you'll also find that he starts off... Um, giving warnings and judgments to the nations, because the nations themselves, the other nations, have been warring with each other and killing each other and doing all these horrible things. And he's like, hey, this idea of social justice is a universal idea that humans made in the image of God should be about, regardless if you are God's chosen people at this point. Social justice, pursuing good, not evil was should have been a universal principle and so he says you guys in the other nations you've neglected that so there's going to be things happening to you and for Israel they're like yeah that's right the other nations and then he comes and he goes hey Israel now it's your turn because you are the people of God and you have neglected the one thing that matters most to God in this context and that is justice so Amos's message is that he denounces the Kingdom of Israel for blatantly disregarding its ethical responsibilities, allowing religious aberrations, meaning their practices weren't uh, pleasing to God, disavowing righteousness and justice, their insensitivity towards the needs of the people, uh, with, particularly within their religious practices was just so contrary to Yahweh's call for his people and Yahweh's expectations. And so we have here in Amos 2.6, it says, they, and he's saying to the, Israel, the, the Israelites, you sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You trample on the, herds of the, uh, on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. I'm going to read something to you. And when I read this, I, I took this from um, one of the scholars that I was um, doing my research through. It hit me. I had to sit for a while because it really hit home. Because though the this book was written for a people thousands of years ago, I actually don't think the injustices that exist are any different today? And when we consider our world and our society, I want you to think about that as I read this because the message is just as important. Inhumane treatment and disregard of others figure prominently in the accusations made by the prophet. These accusations include failing to see suffering and ignoring the needs of the poor either because of misguided sense of entitlements or because of a self-absorbed behavior by people who are too intent on satisfying their own desires to notice the needs of others around them. In addition, these accusations imply that those who have the means and the power to do so are obligated to help those who are less fortunate and finally, Amos's accusations emphasise that ethical behaviour is a starting point for all humanity, not merely an expectation for God's people. That line there, our misguided sense of entitlement or because of self, self-absorbed behaviour that we don't even recognise anymore, injustice. For myself, that really hit home. Our culture is so obsessed with self and what's good for me that we find it really hard, and I think it's getting harder, to see outside of that and to actually look at injustice and actually do something about it. Because God was calling the people to account, and I think he still calls us to account because what matters to God is justice. The leaders of Israel trampled on the needy and they brought the poor to ruin, their own people to ruin. Israel was defined by its ruling class and these people who thought themselves to be in the the top religious tier. And so we know, and there's a pretty famous sort of scripture in Amos that really also has a go at the religious practices of the people in Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, righteousness like a never failing stream. Amos actually wasn't having a go so much at the practices themselves. Whether, like, it wasn't that they were doing them wrong. They weren't making these big mistakes in how they did them. But it was the fact that they had completely neglected what God had said was important, which was justice and righteousness. Completely neglected it. So nothing else that they did mattered. God didn't want a bar of it. If you can't even be about taking care of your own people and making sure that they are not oppressed that you're not selling them into slavery, that they're not starving. If you can't even do that, I don't want anything else that you bring. I don't want it. That to me even, as someone who leads worship here, again, I'm like, oh man. So even if it's just for myself, reflecting on that, going, I can sing a lot of these words but if I don't even give a rip that there is homelessness, that there is poverty, that there's human trafficking, if I don't care about that, what's the point? None of this means anything if I don't care about what God cares about. The oppression of their own people included violence and coercion, exploitation, extortion of the poor, dishonesty and treachery, deprivation of of their freedoms, of their rights. What does God expect from Israel? It says in chapter 5, verse 4, Seek me and live, but don't seek me at Bethel. Don't seek me where you've done all the religious practices because I'm not there. Where will you find me? You're going to find me when you turn, when you repent, you change your thinking and you pursue the things that I've called you to pursue. Hate evil And love good, establish justice in the gate. In Matthew 25, 37 to 40, we see this same theme. Again, like I said, Jesus takes scripture. He takes what the Israelites, what the Jewish people knew. And he interprets them again for his time and for the people there. And we're going to read this together. Because I actually think it's so important that we as a people read together. So on the screen... We're going to read Matthew twenty-five thirty-seven to 40, and this is when someone says to Jesus, you know, like, how do we know that we're, that we know God, that we're following God? Let's read. The righteous said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will say, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Jesus is saying, when you have pursued justice for those who are poor and oppressed and hungry and enslaved, that's when you know me. That's when you know the father. That's when you're following in my way. Again, Paul says it this a different way in Romans and we're going to read this together as well, and I've shortened it a little bit. Romans 12:9 to 21, and he's writing to the Romans who they knew what it was like to be oppressed. The Roman church were not made up of all of these really powerful people. They were made up of the working class who knew what it was like to not have freedom. They knew what it was like to be poor. They were called to bring in the homeless. Actually, part of that, their whole culture was that that's what they did, and it was life changing for that culture because it was so anti what was happening in the world. But Paul says this, and we're going to read it again because it's the same call, just in a different way. Romans 12, 9 to 21. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul actually quotes Amos there. Hate what is evil do what is good, cling to what is good. And so for us, we have to consider in our own context, in our own society, how does this book of Amos, how does this call to pursuing justice, how does that reconcile within our own lives today? What are some of the modern day injustices? Well, I'm sure each one of you probably can already think of one. But I'm going to read out a few. Let's start with poverty. One in eight Australians live in poverty. Globally, 9.2% of the world's population, which is around 719 million people, live in extreme poverty. This number has increased since 2019, not decreased, and we know with COVID, things got a lot worse. Well, What about women? The majority of people who are uh, in poverty are women because they don't have the same abilities to get themselves out in a lot of countries. Violence against women, unequal treatment because of their gender. Worldwide, one in three women and girls will experience violence and abuse in their lifetime. Sorry, one in three will experience abuse. One in six in Australia will experience physical or sexual violence. Racial injustice. The history of injustice to our First Nations people and to... You don't have to look very far globally. So much injustice because of race. Human trafficking. There are more people enslaved today than any other time in our history in the world. Human trafficking generates an average of $150 billion a year. It's estimated that there are 40.3 million people enslaved in the world right now. 40.3 million people are enslaved. Child slavery. Need I say more? Homelessness. Every night, roughly one in 200 Australians find themselves without a safe, secure, affordable place to sleep. One third of homeless people in Australia are under 18. One third of homeless people in Australia are children. So what is our next step? And I don't say these things because I want you to walk out feeling burdened. But actually, if we're going to say we're the image bearers of God... We have to care. We have to carry God's heart for these things. Otherwise, what's the point? Our world desperately needs people who love God and want to be his image so that there can be freedom, so that we can bring about justice. The world needs the church. It needs us to say these things that I've read out, that is not good enough for our world. And we need to do something. What does it look like to be about the things that God is about? What does it look like for him to have his way in us, in our community and in the world to bring about freedom? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. Lord, we do give you our lives let our lives be worshipped to you, God. Let them be pleasing to you. Let them be what you are about. Break our hearts for what breaks yours, Lord. For the injustices in this world. God, would you move in us to hear your voice, to see where you want us to go, what you want us to do. Would we be... Willing, Lord, would you have your way in us today?